Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 122. Today, we're doing something a little different. You know, this is one of the first times we've done this, but we hope it's certainly not the last. We are talking with Secret Movie Clubber Matthew Gentile, who has just actually gone out and written and directed a feature film, American Murderer. I want to be very clear from the start here. I have seen this movie. We are not getting paid. This is not a sponsorship or endorsement in any way. We are doing this because Secret Movie Club is about being a community of movie lovers and movie makers. And it's always been really important to me that if you love movies, then you've got to be part of however you can carrying that to the next generation and carrying this art form to the next generation. And the single most proactive way to do that is to make a movie, which is what Matt has done. What you should know from the start is that American Murderer is about actually a real live uh, true crime case, Jason Derrick Brown, who when I was doing my research, oddly looks a lot like Sean Penn. And I was, they were talking about that. But Jason Derrick Brown was a con man. His heyday was in the early early aughts. Uh, Matt has written and directed a movie about his life, mostly focusing on when everything sort of goes wrong for him at the end. He ended up going on the FBI's most wanted list, and to this day, he's never been found. It's a fascinating movie, a fascinating true life story. Matt is out of AFI, and he made this thing happen. And Matt has been telling me about it for about a year. And I've just said, like, we'll do a podcast. We'll do a podcast because he's going to tell you, and this is the point, what he did, how he wrote it, how he got it made, what it's about, why it moved him. And these are all the things you got to think about if you're going to go out and make a feature film. So without further ado, Matthew Gentile, would you introduce yourself? Thank you so much, Craig, for having me. Thank you for that incredible, incredible introduction. I'll do my best to live up to that. It's such a pleasure to be on here. You know, as Craig said, I'm, I think I'm one of the biggest Secret Movie Club fans. Patrick McElroy might have me beat as the number one Secret Movie Club fan. But um, it's, you know, Secret Movie Club is my home. It's my other living room, as my girlfriend calls it. You know, I try to go all the time because... I always tell Craig and I tell other people, and I'm not paid or sponsored either to say this, but <laughs> yeah, I it's going to be a mutual love. I, I, I have, it's a total love mess. I have two film schools, uh, American Film Institute, AFI, and Secret Movie Club. So thank you for all that you do for film, film lovers, bringing old films to me. I mean, Secret Movie Club has been a film school and watching so many films I watched, you know, when you started in 2017, which is right when I first started writing this script, I think, or had the idea at least where it's inspirational to this when you did your year of Kurosawa, who's my favorite filmmaker. So all this is a long-winded way of saying it. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I am one of many filmmakers who has gained so much from you and Craig and your organization. So thank you. Uh, that's super kind of you to say. Thank you, Matt. I, I mean, I always say this and we're going to move on because otherwise the audience is going to roll their eyes. Like, what is, what is they already, this? They've already turned yeah. down. But, but I mean, the, the Secret Movie Club works because movies are symbiotic. You can make them, but you have to have an audience. So, or you can show them, but you know, if a tree falls in the forest, I wish I could think of something more original. If the tree fall, if you show the movie and the audience comes, then you can keep showing movies. So it's a team effort. To get things going uh, this week, tonight, you could go to the theaters and see American Murderer. You could go see Matthew's movie, which we encourage you to do. Or you could come and see Deep Red and Opera, our Dario Argeno 35 millimeter double feature at the Million Dollar Theater. Tomorrow, actually, we're doing part of our Seeing Double series, The Invisible Man from 1933. One of the original Universal Horror Cycle movies that I love. I mean, everyone knows it. They know the famous shot of Claude Rains tearing off the ribbons. But I actually think it's one of the weirdly underrated ones. I think it's one of the greatest ones. James Whale, who did Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, directed it. It's got a real intensity and it actually, I think, is one of the only truly scary ones. And then we're doubling that with Lee Winnell's remake with uh, Elizabeth Moss that just came out two years ago, The Invisible Man, also by Universal. And Lee Winnell, who you probably know as an actor from Saw and a writer, and he did Insidious, and he did all these movies, he's actually going to be there for a Q&A. So we're honored to show the original Invisible Man, the remake, and then have the director, uh, writer, Lee Winnell, come and talk. Tuesday and Wednesday, October 25th and 26th, 
are our open mic short nights for October, where we want you to submit horror films. By the time you hear this, we'll have closed submissions, but uh, please come and watch the movies. The theme this uh, month, no surprise, is horror. And if you didn't know this, we do a competition every month where from when we announce the theme to when we do the, the short night, if you take up the challenge and you make a short within that window, it's usually about 60 to 90 days, and you do it on the theme, you get entered into our competition, the winner of the best short gets gets two free complimentary tickets to two months of everything we do. And uh, we interview you and we show your short to, it's now 80,000. We got a social media audience of about 80,000 here and around the world. And your interview and your short gets shown. So we want to do something, throw something in the pot. If you're too late for October, just come and see the shorts. You're going to meet filmmakers like this interview with Matthew. It's all about getting filmmakers to meet other filmmakers and, and make movies. And then Thursday, we're actually doing Ganja and Hess, which is this crazy movie from the 70s about vampires, also one of the seminal African-American movies from the 70s. And it's one of the only two movies that stars the lead actor from Night of the Living Dead, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. He kind of knocked it out of the park both times. He made a Night of the Living Dead and then he made Ganja and Hess. And Ganja and Hess was so influential that Spike Lee remade it decades later and he called it The Sweet Blood of Jesus. But it's literally almost a shot for shot remake of Ganja and Hess because he loves Ganja and Hess. And then we're doubling that with a 35 millimeter print of Blackula, a very famous black exploitation vampire movie. So we're just looking at two African American contributions, black contributions to the horror genre that explicitly deal with black issues of the 70s. And there you go. So that's the week. As always, you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. Find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. We got our whole season through December up there. You and I have been talking about this movie, and I remember that one of the first things, I, I know I mentioned in the, the head, one of the first things you mentioned to me it was that this guy went to Laguna Beach High School, my alma mater. I graduated in 1995, and I think he graduated just like eight years before I did or something. Yes, he's eight or nine years older than you, I think. People who attended the high school five or 10 years prior might still have their photos up in the hallways. They might still be talked about by teachers. It's not so far in the distant past that he might not have been mentioned. The other thing that was fascinating is that he was Mormon. And uh, my school had a very huge Mormon population. And I remember we used to, for the, those of us who were not Mormon, the Church of Latter-day Saints was, is just right across the street from Laguna Beach High School. So anybody who would be Mormon, they actually would go to service right before high school. We remembered this vividly. And then they would all walk from the church over to the high school and they'd come into class and they were all like gorgeous and blonde. And like all of them came from Hawaii. We could never figure that out. But my first question to you is, so you made a movie, American Murderer. It has an incredible cast. Tom Pelfrey from Ozark, uh, Ryan Felipe, who everybody knows from his whole string of teen movies. And then from things like MacGruber and Ryan Felipe has now been around for 10, 20 years. Adina Menzel, Broadway star, was just in Uncut Gems. Jackie Weaver from Animal Kingdom and Silver Linings Playbook. And uh, Paul Schneider, another amazing actor. I mean, I mean, you got incredible, incredible talent, incredible cast. And this whole movie is about this con man turned ultimately murderer. It's sort of given in the title. Jason Derrick Brown, you go to AFI, you want to be a, a writer director. This is the movie that you get made. How did you decide on this subject matter? What drew you to it? Were you like, this is going to be my feature film? Or was it one of a number of projects? Just sort of let's start at the beginning. Yeah. So basically the story first came into my orbit when I was about 14 years old. So before I wanted to be a filmmaker, <clears throat> I actually wanted to be an FBI agent. And I used to go on the FBI.gov website because I don't know if you remember this, but in Silence of the Lambs and then the, was one of my favorite films I saw when I was way too young. I think I was 11 and my friend's dad showed it to me and it just totally lit my fuse, got me excited about films and filmmaking. I saw that and Dog Day Afternoon in a very similar time. And those were two movies that really got me excited about filmmaking, what filmmaking could do. Um, even though I was definitely too young to appreciate that. You know, around the time I was 14 years ago, the FBI stopped telling us because in the movie Hannibal, the not-so-great sequel to Sounds of the Lambs, they had the FBI Top 10 website on there. And that's where I learned about it. So I would go on the site and just, you know, with the juvenile thing, I'm like, okay, maybe I'll help them catch a criminal. Now, in 2004, I was around 13, 14 years old. That's when the crime was committed and the movie is mostly set. And Jason Derrick Brown was not a top 10 fugitive yet, but he was a fugitive on the website. 
And, you know, say like a top, there's like a top 100 or 200 fugitives before people get to the top 10. At that time on the list, it was Osama bin Laden, Whitey Bulger. So when you look at the FBI fugitives in general, beyond the top 10, you see a lot of mean, menacing looking guys, exactly like what you said. Then all of a sudden you see this guy who has this, he's a surfer dude, look, Southern California kind of guy, spiky blonde hair, looks like Sean Penn from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, so, you know, he just kind of catches you off guard naturally. Which I have to imagine was probably one of his strengths as a con man. Yeah. And by the way, what you said about... Um, Sean Penn, his body double has been arrested twice since Jason's been missing in 18 years. Like he's been pulled over by feds or, or cops twice. So it's poor guy, it's poor body double of Sean Penn's. But basically I saw the face really just struck me and it struck 14 year old Matthew for whatever reason. Cut to 12 or so years later, I've graduated film school from AFI and I am in that kind of purgatory that every, a lot of filmmakers when they graduate is like, you know, what's your first feature going to be? You know, I was lucky in that I had two short films. I made thesis films. I got hired to do one the year after I graduated. That was Connor's class, who ended up some of my key collaborators on this movie. My cinematographer, Khalil Robinson, is Connor's classmate, as is my editor, uh, Chris Young, and my other editor, Matt Allen, is the year below. This is a very AFI affair. But basically, I was, you know, I was out of film school, going around festivals. Some of my shorts did quite well for me, won some awards, got me a lot of meetings, you know, had a little bit of like what they call that water bottle tour. Where, you know, go to different companies and they're asking you, what's your, you know, what's your first movie? What's your feature? I've never heard that term. That sounds, yeah, that sounds like perfectly apt where you go to a bunch of offices and they give you a water bottle. One gives you Fiji, <laughs> one gives you Evian, and then your, your car gets filled with water bottles. I didn't come up with that. There's someone very funny and smart that, you know, I was figuring out what's my first movie. And I had something I wanted to make for maybe like, you know, a really small amount of money, like $10,000, like just kind of go for it. It's funny because I, I really respect the Duplass brothers a lot. I like their films. It's not the kind of films I do, as you've seen from my movie, but I love their movies and I love their attitude about just go out and do it. Don't wait. Don't wait for permission. So I thought maybe I'll make something really small, you know, just go for it. And I was trying to do that. I then actually was offered a script to direct by a couple agents who were trying to sign me and they were like, this would be really cool. And I looked at it it was like a home invasion thriller, but it was written by these twin brothers and they didn't want to change a thing of it. So I was sort of in an awkward position because I wanted to, you know, make it something, you know, else than it was. And they just weren't really changing. So I realized if I did this movie, it wouldn't be my voice, wouldn't be what I wanted to do. So I was kind of in that like, okay, what is my first feature? Because the smaller project wasn't really sustaining me for very long. And so, you know, I was at the time, like I had a day job reading screenplays uh, from multiple places like Blacklist and Nickel and all those. And I, you know, I worked as a script reader and I did all kinds of gigs, you know, shooting like some really <laughs> kitschy reality shows for some people under a fake name. And I was just doing that to pay the bills while I worked on my own projects. And I was having that kind of crisis of like, what is my first feature? What does that look like? One day I was storyboarding for a commercial show, shooting a dentistry commercial. And uh, I was drawing out these shots, drawing storyboards. I always have uh, something on the TV. All of a sudden, I don't know where Jason's face just like popped on the television. And it all came rushing back. Like I was like, this guy's still missing? What happened here? How, how did that, what? It just totally caught me off guard. And I started watching the program he was on. And the program wasn't only about him and the crime he committed, but it also was interviewed people who knew him and loved him. Some of them are sort of portrayed in the movie or composite characters, but it really went in depth. And I just couldn't believe this guy was still missing. And so I kind of just said to myself, I was like, well, what if this was a movie? I would see that film. I would see a film about this guy, you know? And that's kind of always my first edit for when I sit down to write a screenplay, you know, whether it's one of directing or not even, you know, it's just what I pay to go see this movie on Friday night. It's kind of my, always my, Imagine. I was like, that movie I would pay to see Friday night, you know? I think at the time, good time. Even. I was like, it's, you know, it, it could be like that maybe. And Yeah, the Softy Brothers movie with Robert Pattinson. was really inspiring to me because, you know, the first thing when you get a subject like this in your head is like, well, how do you make an audience care about him? Because he's obviously not necessarily the most likable guy. And that's a big term that they use in this industry, likable, likable, which I've always not been you know, into, but, you know, how do you make an audience care? How do you make them compelled? Good Time was a really cool example, I thought, of like a movie that took someone who was really like morally reprehensible and like just, you know, he was creepy. I think it was a brilliant performance and a brilliant movie. Every day I woke up thinking about this movie, Jason Derrick Brown. So I just said, well, why don't I just try writing it as a screenplay? Forget what budget it could be made and all that. Because I thought it would be too ambitious for a first feature and I was kind of right because that's why it took so long <laughs> to get made. You know, I couldn't stop thinking about the project. So, you know, I began writing the script. One of my first scripts writing alone, 
Um, you know, I tried, you know, written on shorts, whatever, this is one of my first screenplays. And so it took me a long time to figure out what was the story. Cause there was a lot in there, as you can tell, there's, you know, stuff about him as a Mormon There's stuff. He's a very fascinating character because he has so many different sides to his personality. Early drafts of the screenplay that I kind of went around with were very limited in terms of they were really just kind of following him. And there wasn't really much outside his point of view. So it was kind of more like almost sparse, like the first draft of the script, I think, or the first early drafts were like 85 pages. And they just were really tight and kind of with Jason, you know, you follow him from point A to point B, he commits the crime, and then it goes. At the time, there was an actor, Jonathan Groff, who I had known because before I went to film school, I worked in William Morris Endeavor in the mailroom of the talent agency. And one of my favorite jobs at William Morris Endeavor, one of my favorite things they made us do, I should say, you got to tape actors' auditions. Most of the other people in the mailroom would run from this job because it was scary, high pressure. <laughs> if you screwed up, there was a lot at stake, but I loved it. You know, I, I think I taped like something like 60 something actors, and actors would often ask me for feedback. They're like, how was that? You know, and that really for me was my first directing kind of school in a way. One of my first directing schools was just taping actors auditions and learning to help them, you know, in, in a very unofficial capacity. But so I met Jonathan that way and we hit it off. And a few years later, I'm out of film school. I have my shorts and I have the script and I say to him like, look, I think you'd be great for this part. So he kind of was unofficially attached to the project for a while. And um, we did a proof of concept short where we went and shot one scene from the script, which was the SWAT invasion climax, just an easy little thing to do. <laughs> and we did it all in one shot. Um, it was like a long take. So at the time, I think those were really in. Um, and, you know, and it was pretty cool. It came out well, you know, it was like four minute scene. It wasn't like a traditional short film. And I would say that, you know, I made some shorts that opened a lot of doors for me, but I don't actually ever think I made a great short film because they're so hard. You know, short films themselves, like the really great ones like Curfew or, you know, uh, Martin McDonough's one six shooter, like they kind of have like a joke structure, plant payoff, boom, you know, and like short film is a whole other art form. I think it's arguably as hard, if not harder than feature films to really get it right. And so for me, like my shorts were always like trailers for features, you know, they all right. were like that. And so for American Murder, the assignment I gave myself that came from an idea, actually, and this is a good story for anyone who has a script out there that they're trying to like pedal around because it's hard to get, we both know it's hard to get people to read. You know, because every time you send a script to an executive or a financier or a producer, they have 12 scripts in their pile, you know, so how are they going to look at yours, especially if you're a first time director, you know, because nobody rushes to give a first time director a job. <laughs> they're, not, they're not like, oh yeah, I'd love to give that guy's first movie or that woman her first movie. It's always like, this is a risk. It's a gamble. It's, you know, we don't know if we're going to, how it's going to do. It's always a shot in the dark. So I was very lucky to have a lot of people, my producers, my team who really backed me and supported me. My mission with this script, because I pitched the script, you know, back when Jonathan was attached without the proof of concept to a company. And the company was kind of like a CD executive sort of rolling their eyes, like sleepy in the meeting. And I leave and this guy chases me down the hallway and say, hey, listen, I think you're talented and I think you have a good movie here, but they're not going to read when you send the script. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, he was like, you, you need to do a proof of concept short. I was like, why? I have shorts that have won awards. Like, you know, they've seen them. They like them. That's why they met me. Why do they need another short if they have a script? And he was like, your shorts show you can direct, but your shorts don't show you can direct this. And it was a really valuable, like, nugget. He gave me the description. He was like, shoot a short scene. Don't spend a lot of money on it, <laughs> right? Just like, go shoot, shoot one scene. Show what the movie can look and feel like. It doesn't have to be its own standalone short. Just shoot a scene from the movie to advertise it. And so we did, we went out, we shot that scene. And right when we went out with that proof of concept short, Jonathan appeared on Mindhunter season two, I think it's 2018. So the show dropped and we started to get a lot of interest because it was on IMDb <laughs> that he was in it. And so then I had a lot of companies chasing me for the script, asking me to read it. Then there were a couple of companies that were interested in the script, but without me directing it. I didn't do that because I said, no, I wrote this so I could direct it. And I was kind of in a bit of a, like a dark place. Cause I was like, I, you know, then, then they weren't, the calls weren't coming <laughs> and I was a little scared, but sure enough, two companies kind of converged on me at the same time. Traveling picture show ran by Kevin Madison, Carissa Buffell. They have this awesome guy named, who has a name that doesn't sound real named Johnny wonder. He reached out to me cold on my website and said, Hey, I've been tracking your short films. You know, I'd love to what are you working on? I saw you're doing this thing, American Murder, sounds cool. So he had me come in and pitch. And then before that, there was a producer named Gia Walsh, who she was at the time going to film Zola, uh, which she did with A24. And she was converging on me around the same time. She had heard me through 
mutual friend. And so these two forces of Geo Walsh's company, GG Films and Traveling Picture, kind of came at me <laughs> and banded together, optioned the script for me, allowed me to keep my attachment to direct it. And through that, I went through a phase of long development with them, about a year, where I did multiple drafts of script. And that was my professional writing school, you know, where I really learned how to become a screenwriter, you know, working on my own script and making it better and taking, you know, learning how to take notes. The way that you want to do it subjectively as a movie maker is not necessarily the way the market really is or how the market responds or how you get money. And it's, it's really difficult, I think, to be a creative, but then also put on the other hat and say, well, wait, as you just said, what's going to get someone to open up their wallet? Why would they be, you know, and you, you have to have sort of both those brains or have someone on your team who has the, that brain because often creatives are not great at the other thing. And, and then vice versa, often people who really understand the game need good creatives to make sure that the product is good, blah, blah, blah. But you just said something interesting. So American Murderer, when people watch it, and I love this about it, it has a bit of a, and I don't know if you found this in editing or if the script ultimately read this way, but it has a nonlinear Rashomon multiple perspective. You're with Ryan Felipe, who is this by the book FBI agent, but then he's interviewing people like Jason's older brother, Jason's younger sister. Then he's going and talking to this woman that Adina Menzel, that Jason leases a house from and then has a romantic relationship with. And you get pieces of Jason's story from his point of view, but also from all these other people's point of view. And you do this really clever thing where sometimes someone starts talking and we go to something and then we only come back to them 20 minutes later and realize, oh, we're still part of this story. But it does create a really dynamic structure. Was that something that you developed in that year? Was that something that actually came in the editing? Totally. It was something developed in that year because it's a great question, a big compliment. And Rashomon is absolutely, and it's a reference for any movie I ever yeah, try totally. to make. <laughs> you know, and Citizen Game too. I mean, they were both thought of, but... Yeah, because as I said, it started out much more, not like that. It was like the script they option for me was very like just sparse almost. You know, I was very influenced by Paul Schrader and I loved his minimalism. And I was kind of going for that, like just a sparse anti-hero movie. But as I worked on it, you know, and I think that's part of the challenging thing about when you collaborate in general, whether it's producers who have access to financiers who get the check written to a cinematographer who's trying to understand what's in your head <laughs> or an editor who's telling you you kind of look fat in those jeans right like whatever it is it's like there's always that resistance you might have inside and of course i went through that god i did but you know the producers really you know they would give notes and they would respond to what is written and then, and then i think your job as a filmmaker is to understand why and then do what it is that helps you tell your story right and that's i think the balance where a lot of people sometimes get lost as they go overboard and they Compromised too much, but Rainer Fassbender, I think, has a great quote um, from that book you recommended to me. Oh yeah, the Anarchy of the Imagination. Doesn't he say don't? Com I think he said don't compromise, adapt. But that was like, I, and I like, I think I have it like written somewhere on my wall. Yeah, I, I, I hope he said that. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, I might be butchering it, but I remember. He, I think I remember someone else, some other great director said that because compromise is bad. You don't want to like compromise the integrity of your film, what you're trying to make. And I got to say, through all the notes I had, and I had a lot of them, through all the cuts I did, you know, script, drafts, walking out, I completely have the film I wanted to make. And I'm very lucky to be able to say that. And that's based on my producers and my team who worked with me to get it there. I love to make movies as well. And I, I have a little experience with some of the things you're talking about. Nothing like you, but when you talk about these things, it gets me to think about I think one of the toughest things I always felt for anybody, especially in American cinema and the way the American movie industry works, is when you go to make a movie that's going to cost more than 10000 like you just said, and you, know, you want to get actors and you got to get a crew, you got to convince a lot of people. If people are going to put money into it, they legitimately have a say. But I think one of the most difficult things for a filmmaker, especially a writer-director, is that diplomat, I don't know, I, I wanna say this the right way, but you get notes from everybody. And how do you parse out, ah, that's a good note. It, like you were saying, how do you be humble enough to say, actually that note will make the movie better. And I trust that. And also parse out, okay, I understand why they gave that note and I understand why that note's coming, but I don't know that that's the best for the movie. And yet I have a relationship with this person and they have to feel respected. So my, my question to you is, what advice do you have for people when you go through that note car wash, making sure everyone feels heard 
and respected and that you're all getting to make the movie you all want to make and everyone feels like a team without sacrificing or yourself getting lost from what motivated you to make the movie in the first place. There's a few things. One is the clearer you are on what film you want to make, that's going to help when you're dealing with lots of notes. Because I find that the more tons of notes come, not necessarily when something's badly written. I mean, that might be the case, right? It might just not be working. But it's less often the case with like craft per se, than it is like, it's not really clear what this movie is. Looking at notes as a way to let a film evolve rather than conform was always helpful for me. You know, the first couple of times I did get notes, I was overly trying to please, you know, the first couple of returns and they, and it didn't work. They, they liked it less actually. Yeah. I was <laughs> going to say it actually so never. The first couple, right. And so I was like, oh yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. And then some things maybe I did better, but most of it was just like, it was, you know, it, it wasn't working, you know, and it still wasn't working. Cause that's the funny thing about notes is, you know, you get them and it's not necessarily what they actually want. You know, that's why they say the good old note behind the note. Like I have a great mentor named Billy Ray, who he's written Captain Phillips and Hunger Games and directs. And didn't he do Shattered Glass? He directed Shattered Glass. That was his first feature. I was about to say, I love those movies where there's a character who is not as dynamic, but they're a truly good person. And then there's a character who's super dynamic and everyone loves them, but they actually turn out to be a very like shady person. And there was something interesting. You introduced uh, Ryan Felipe. And I love that little detail about how he's introduced with a Bush Cheney keychain. You immediately know that this guy is a conservative by the book FBI agent. And then you see, you know, you introduce Jason. And even though you know this guy is trouble, you can also see that he's a lot of fun. And so I guess my question to you was, how did that dynamic come about? Because that's a really interesting way of asking your audience to look at what a truly good person looks like who's playing by the rules and look at what a person you might be attracted to, but who's not playing by the rules, who's going to burn you. How did that come about? What you're picking up on is part of the design, which is at first Jason's fun and Ryan's character is not. The look is much colder and cooler, whereas the look of Jason's is much warmer and more vibrant. And as the movie progresses, there's a bit of a flip because Ryan, you realize once you realize what Jason did, it becomes a different feeling, right? That the audience will have towards Jason without spoiling it. That actually is good because it also answers your other question of how did the script evolve and was the multiple perspectives found in the edit. So the way the screenplay kind of changed from that 85-page version where it was just Jason all the time and just in his point of view, you know, Ryan's character didn't come in until page like 60 of that script. Like he came in after the pretty much at the climax. You know, that character didn't have a huge role. But as I went to develop it with Trailer Picture and GG Films, you know, we talked about something more of like a cat and mouse thriller, which this is on a surface level. But my way to make that work, giving the script some genre, fun and flair, and I, because I do love those kinds of movies. I love cop and criminal films and I love heat and I love... Going back to Les Miserables, I used to, I, my brother and I used to put on Les Miserables in the, in the living room, Javert and Jean Valjean. Like, I love that kind of, you're the fugitive, you know, the hunter and the hunted. I always was into that thing. But the way to make it work for me in terms of the film I want to make was to give it exactly what you talked about, which was that Ryan's character is kind of the audience's way in to all of these different people. And what made it a movie to me worth making rather than just another crime heist movie was that it was as much about Jason Derrick Brown as the people who knew him. So by going with Ryan's character and allowing you to kind of see all these different perspectives of Jason, by the end of the movie, by seeing him through the point of view of his sister, his mother, everyone, you get a 360 degree panoramic view of who Jason was, whether you love him, hate him, or fall anywhere in between. That was kind of that idea was to, you know, to contrast these two because they are opposites, right? And yet that's the whole contradiction of the cop and the criminal. Like the one thing separating them often is a badge and a gun, right? And so that was something that was very conscious. You know, we wanted you at first to kind of be distant from Lysing because Frank's character Lysing is picking up the pieces. He's kind of caught up in Jason's mess, you know, and we even like, me and my, my cinematographer, Khalil, I think she did such a great job at like giving the scenes with him more of like, even like her, his first interview with Adina, which is where essentially you meet him, you know, that has kind of like an overcast gray look because he's stuck in the mess. He's like, you know, this is not the fun part. The fun part is with, you know, with Jason at the nightclub, at the boat party, at, you know, flashing toys around. So that contrast was really important to telling our story and helping, I think, the audience be oriented as to where, how to feel towards Jason, also be warned of where this might go. You know, that's what the nonlinear approach to the narrative kind of does is it kind of gives you a sense of like, you know, things are going to get bad, but you don't know how bad. And we're kind of stringing you along, right? You know, we're kind of like bringing you in 
bit by bit, kind of doling it out slowly. And, you know, the nonlinear narrative came pretty naturally. I was working in flashbacks at different points, and I actually, one of my producers, Kevin Madison, a great collaborator, said to me, he was like, because in the script, I'd be very, like, I was very scared about doing flashbacks and confusing people. <laughs> I was really scared about it. And something he told me was, he was like, look, on TV, they are doing it so much these days. They're going back and forth all the time. They're not telling you when or where. And trusting that audiences are smart has become now more than ever so important because they're really sophisticated with what they're watching on TV. Like the amount of things that do time jumps now, it, you know, from Westworld or like any, you know, which I don't even watch, but you know, there's so much time jumping going around that. Like, and it's not the way to do every movie. The new script I'm working on is completely linear with no flashbacks whatsoever. Kind of because after this one, I was like, I, I, I don't want to do the flashback again. But I don't want to become the flashback guy. I don't want to be the flashback guy. But, um, you know, it was cool to do and fun to kind of find the transitions. You know, some of them were very planned out and some of them were lucky discoveries. I would say planning for transitions is an important thing. You know, I had to kind of figure that out as I went along. You have a really amazing cast. I was wondering, as a director, a first-time director, were you nervous about working with people like Tom Pelfrey and Idina Menzel and Ryan Felipe and Paul Schneider and Jackie Weaver, who have done a bunch of movies, and Kevin Corrigan, who has this great single scene as his dad, and I want to ask a question about that later, but I mean, everyone knows Kevin Corrigan from Goodfellas and, you know, a lot of indie movies from the, the 90s and the aughts and did to this day was in Departed, and you're working with all these amazing performers and you're a first-time director. I seem to remember a conversation you and I had where like different performers had different styles. So my question to you was, how is a, a first-time writer-director with some experienced cast, how did you work with them to make the movie you wanted to make, to work with their differences, their distinctions, to respect that they had done more movies than you had, and yet at the same time try to make sure that the way you saw the movie was the way it was happening, or maybe it was, maybe this is a, a non-issue, but what was that like? Cause the cast is great. Well, thank you. I mean, I got incredibly lucky. Like when we made it to make this film, we cast Tom officially, we went out to Castville in March of 2020. Oh man. So not the best time to start casting or so you would think. Tom came on pretty, he was the first to come on because you know, the nature of the movies, it's always anyone's gonna ask who's gonna play Jason. You know, and Ozark dropped in April of 2020, and he was getting a lot of heat and a lot of offers. And when my producer recommended him, I actually wasn't watching Ozark. She calls me up. She goes, hey, watching Ozark. This guy, Tom Pelfrey, is amazing. I'd known of him. I'd heard his name. I was like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, I'm not watching Ozark. She said, we'll watch it. In the same breath, my brother and my best friend call me, and they go, are you watching Ozark? This guy's perfect for your script. So I go, okay, I'm going to watch Ozark. So I watch it, 30 seconds flat. I just was like, oh my God, this is the guy. And the person he reminded me of, I talked about this on my commentary, he had a physicality that reminded me of Mifune, Tosher Mifune. Just Tom is so physically dynamic. I called up GN, I said, all right, let's make it off. I'll write a, a Patrick one page letter. We were very lucky that we got him because at the time, you know, from Ozark, he was getting a lot of offers. It was not the best time to go out to him either. But sure enough, he read the script. He really responded to it. We had a few meetings. He had some concerns about the script and how we were telling the story. You know, in the first question he asked me was, is this a story of a wounded, immature man-child or a sociopath? Oh, what was that? What was your answer? Well, we both went the path of a wounded, immature man-child. However, I would agree with anyone who said that Jason is a sociopath because what he did is sociopathic. But in his mind, I don't think Jason saw himself that way. Which is a theme you have in the movie, which I actually found really unsettling in, in the best possible way, which is Jason's mom, played by Jackie Weaver, has a great line where she says, I think the difference between you and your dad, and the audience will learn in the movie that, and you learn this fairly early on, that the dad also was some kind of con man and involved in shady stuff. But the mom, Jackie Weaver, says the difference between you and your dad is that you might just believe your own BS or whatever that line is. And that was very unsettling to me because I think we live in an era where a lot of us can convince ourselves of our own delusions if we're not rigorous about, am I being honest with myself? And is this the truth? Are these the facts? We seem to live in an era where people have decided they don't need to wrestle with facts. And so I, I found that to be very resonant. You know, that scene is one of my favorites as well, because, you know, the nightmare for the con artist is the person who could see right through them. And in the case of Tom and Jackie Weaver, who is, you know, I mean, all these actors are great. She is a, such a tour de force and such a pleasure to work with, but she could see right through. She knows exactly what he's about. She knows he's bullshit. 
And so that's that's hard for him in that scene. And, and he that's one of the scenes, few scenes where he crumbled and shows arguably some real vulnerability. But yeah, the con man tends to believe their own lies and that's how they're able to get one over on them. So that was something Tom and I were really aware of when we talked. I did rehearse with actors. I did Zooms, you know, because it was again COVID and I would end up the luxury of like getting a space where I could do it. I, if I could have, I would have. But yeah, we did a lot of Zoom rehearsals where I really worked out not so much the scenes even, but the relationships. Because I think, you know, movies to me, you know, the great movies are all about relationships. You know, it's always about these two characters, this, you know. And so I really worked, like Tom and Adina did a Zoom, where, you know, Ryan and Adina did a Zoom for their scenes. Like we kind of did Zooms based on like multi-scene relationships. And, um, you know, it was something that Tom was very cognizant of, was making sure we were, you know, he was able to portray him truthfully. And, you know, he did a really phenomenal job. I mean, like we were talking about, they are all different. Every actor has a different language, rhythm. Some might seem similar, but they all have things they need. Tom was super prepared, knew the script inside and out. You know, the, the first day before we started filming, I finally got to meet him in person after all these Zooms with him where we talked about the character and the script. And our Zoom meetings really would look like I would Zoom him up. You know, he'd have the script. We'd read scenes. I'd read the other characters badly. And he would act. I'd be like, oh my God, this guy's good. <laughs> he would, you know, just be like, this is like 10. I'm sorry. He's like, oh, it's like 10% of what I can give you. You know, but he, he, we would just be talking. You know, we would talk about a line and what the line meant. And then maybe I'd go change a little something after, but it was pretty loose in format. And then by the time he got to set, he was so prepared. But yeah, the day before shooting, I was like, I want to take you for dinner, man. Let's go. And he's like, I can't go to dinner. I'm studying your script. And I was like, I love it. <laughs> he literally had the script down and like highlighted things. He was like, I'm, I'm, I'm studying. I'm sorry. I'll see you tomorrow. Well, I mean, what a testament to him because you, your movie wouldn't have worked if he didn't work. Correct. And he really elevated it. What's special about him is Tom can come in and just, he will surprise you. You know, like that scene we filmed the boat party, which was originally actually a much longer scene than what ended up in the final film. He started doing those pull-ups like that wasn't planned. The nightclub scene where he puts his hands on the ceiling. He just had this amazing physicality to him. And my cinematographer and I, we actually had planned in our storyboards because I storyboarded every frame pretty detailed. We had planned a lot of longer lenses on it, but we had to widen out because he was often doing stuff that was like, even in the Jackie Reaver scene, like he would get up and like use the space. And he was just really special in that way um you know and like i said they're all different ryan you know is the consummate professional he's been doing it i think for i think he's been acting for as long as i've been alive i was about looks, to say even though even though he looks younger than me <laughs> but yeah no totally but he he and reese witherspoon were of course in that remake of dangerous liaisons at high school in the 90s uh cruel intentions yeah there you go cruel intentions yeah, uh, yeah, and no, and he's, and he's great in that. But, you know, I mean, Ryan, what was really cool about him was he had stories. I mean, he had stories about working with Robert Altman and Clint oh, Eastwood, yeah. Tony Scott. Tony Scott, like, discovered him in film. He was working in TV before that, but, like, Tony Scott was, like, his mentor, and he lived in Tony Scott's guest house. Wow. Ryan Phillippe got, uh, he got my movie off the ground for sure by joining in, and he also got Gosford Park off the ground his saying yes to that movie got it running wow. because of his cruel intentions fame yeah no he's just a great actor and he has so many cool stories and was just so so easy to work with he's super professional Adina, I was such a theater kid growing up. I saw her in Wicked when I was 12. I was, because you're from New York. You're from the city. I'm from the city. And, you know, yeah, I saw her in Wicked. I, yeah, I had the Rent soundtrack as a teen. I was one of those kids um, <laughs> who would sing it at parties and uh, people would say stop. But I've always loved her work. And, you know, she was so spectacular and uncut gems. And she was in this play called Skin Tight at the Geffen. And that was a, a drama. And she was awesome in that too. She came actually, she was pitched to us by an agent. I always liked her, but I didn't even, she wasn't on my list for the role a lot of actors were like that they were just like this person might be available you know and it was again it was because we were filming in december 2020 early 2021 so a lot of people more than likely would not have been available if we shot any other time this is one of those weird instances where covid may have helped you uh, it, it definitely did i hate to say that we were filming at a time when the world was in a really miserable place which is why it was such an honor to be able to film that and i think we all felt that you know we all were, would kind of say that like we had Thanksgiving over the shoot, like Thanksgiving party. We were like, God, talk about being thankful or something that we get to do this in this time is so beyond insane. Forget how the movie <laughs> turns out. We get to make a movie right now. You know, there was a feeling of that. When we filmed in Utah, a lot of people came to it who had been out of work for months. And this crew was so phenomenal. I mean, they just came together and like, I compared it to a sports team in the Great Depression. I mean, they really like, 
yeah, yeah, were just yeah. such an incredible first-rate crew, you know, and they were so excited about the movie. The real Jason Derrick Brown has some ties to Utah on Salt Lake City. Um, the crime actually didn't take place there. It actually took place in Phoenix. In my research, it was interesting, but I think the last time there was a credible sighting of him was in Salt Lake City. Yeah, and he had ties to the area. He lived there for a long time. There were some streets we filmed on where he uh, like, we're like, oh yeah, that was Jason lived in that apartment. Our gaffer actually was good friends with his roommate oh, wow. who told me stories. One of our hair people, she, one of her best friends dated him and she came up to me and was like, on day five and was like, I just want to say, I really appreciate how you're telling this story because this is true. <laughs> this is what wow. it was like. So it was interesting to see how there were ties to the area. Another one of the strengths of your movie, your ability to actually show both things, which is that it is clear that he is a con man and in it for himself and just kind of doesn't want the party to end was the the feeling I got watching the whole movie. And I really found it, again, uncomfortable in a good way because I think about America and I think about living beyond our means. And you shot it, whether this was intentional or not, in a lot of areas that could look like anywhere, like the Megaplex. I remember looking at your movie and there's like a Bed Bath and & Beyond and there's a Sizzler and there's a, and if you've ever cross countryed around the country, there are even big cities that just sort of feel like these anonymous uh, suburbias. But my question to you is that while I felt like uh, this guy is bad news and I had a lot of empathy and sympathy actually for Jackie Weaver, his mom, who was like, you know, he's my son, but he is also a murderer. At the same time, and here's my question, I was really moved by the relationship between his older brother and his younger sister. In those moments, you had that really great scene on the golf course where he asks Paul Schneider, his older brother, to like detail that BMW, and he's not going to tell him why. And it's like one of the few times that he's not going to lie to someone. He's like, just do it and don't ask me. How did that come about? Because I thought that that felt real to me. A con artist who really is not thinking about anybody but himself can simultaneously have relationships that he's not going to violate. I'm glad you picked up that because that's the theme of the movie to me is family. You know, I always believe movies have a one word theme. And for me, the theme of American Murder was family because it's as much about Jason Derrick Brown and exactly what you said, the guy who doesn't want the party to end, the big man on campus. But it's as much about that as it is because that's not that interesting of a movie after 20 five minutes, right? That's real one of the film. It's really about the people who knew him and who loved him. And the most significant of that is his family. His family is who he's closest to, and that's what he's trying to recreate. And that's why it's the recurring theme, because even with Adina and her son, he's trying to recreate family, right? There's sort of that totally that yeah. running throughout the whole movie. I call the film true crime fiction, because there were things I made up to dramatize the story, but there were also a lot of facts that inspired things in the film, or are just facts that are portrayed in the film, but I did take life, you know, liberties. However, Jason's brother did actually detail his car and get and move it for him. And so for me, you know, the golf course scene where that came from, and I think the credit really goes to both Tom and Paul for how they played it and found it. Because the scene actually, as it was written originally, before we did rehearsals on that scene, that was one of the few scenes we got to actually rehearse kind of a lot, um, which was good because it was a six-page scene, you know, <laughs> there's a lot going on. And scenes like that can be a bit of a bitch when you're filming like when you're used to filming scenes of people talking in chairs and you're like oh my god i have like movement and a golf course and sunlight you know those are just practical challenges that get you when you're a first-time director but um you know they found in the scene because originally the scene actually ended with tom kind of getting one over on paul like he was like he gets him to do it and he's like gotcha and you see kind of like a wink or a smirk almost tom and paul when they read it in the room, I let them do a take where they just added stuff and improvised stuff. And so they went off the page and they tried some things, some of which I kept, some of which I didn't. But then at the very end, they found this amazing moment where he looked at him and Paul was like, are you okay? And Tom was like, you know, and it was all in their eyes. And I was like, I've got to make sure we get that. And I, uh -huh. and so then I rescripted it in and then when we shot it, they really played it. Yeah, you know, it's one of my favorite scenes, too, because that was something we really wanted to make sure the film didn't go down was, you know, it's not about Jason being insane. I mean, we're not trying to be Joker or American Psycho as much as I like American Psycho. You know, we're trying to stay grounded and make sure that you really feel Jason's desperation. You know, and my producers were really good about that, too, when we were doing cuts. You know, my editor, Matt Allen and Chris Young, both were really good at, like, finding moments where Jason felt desperate 
and wasn't like, you know, too crazy and over the top. Right. And it's a balance, you know, but it speaks to, you know, it's a team. I mean, Tom played it that way and it was in there and, you know, I think so, it's just grounded. Yeah. You know, the audience needs to see the movie. I know we're talking about all this, but I will just say again, if you're somebody who's into true crime and even beyond that, I mean, I'm not necessarily a true crime person, although I come from a family that's obsessed with true crime. <laughs> well, they could come see it. I will. My mom and grandmother would be totally down. They'll be like, you should show more movies like this. <laughs> but like, I believe that most people are not bad people in the sense of like Adolf Hitler. I think very few people are certifiably sociopathic, psychopathic. Something is mentally off. There are those people. I'm not, I mean, there are a lot of them too. But I mean, as a percentage of all of us, I think most people try to do their best. But I think a lot of people who still try to be good people, try to do their best, make really awful decisions. You know, there are a lot of horrible stories and I live in fear of this. I'm in the middle of my life and I've got a family. I got three kids and I think about this all the time. And I think what you've accomplished is what you just said. I don't get the feeling that he's a psychopath. I think there's a distinction there. I think there are sociopathic elements. I think anyone who's a con man has to have a little, for narcissism at least. You have that amazing scene with Kevin Corrigan, and I come from a divorced family. And so that was another thing where clearly the mom and dad have divorced, and the dad's taken him to Vegas or something. He like comes in just with wads of bills that you as an adult are like, that's not right. And the daughter, Jamie, I think, is kind of on the mom's side. But the boys really look up to their dad. And then later you have a great scene where the boys seem to be helping their dad with something. So my question to you is, was that dad thing made up or was that really an element of Jason's life? Because that was fascinating to me. It was real. His father disappeared 10 years before he did into the ether. No one knows what happened to him. And he was a con man. It was an interesting life because there was Mormon conformity. And then rebellion. And that existed both in Jason's dad and, and Jason. So his dad was a Mormon as well. Mm -hmm. And they were a Mormon family, but he would eventually crack and go off the deep end. Kind of be back and forth, I think, between it throughout his life. He would get religious and into the lifestyle, the tight, rigid lifestyle that that religion requires. And then he would turn and kind of go crazy and party and gamble and take the kids to Vegas and Tijuana and they would <laughs> allegedly like wait in the car while he like brought money into drug dealers houses and came out. So he was involved in shady criminal dealings. You know, there are stories that have been told by like family members or people who knew that family where like the cops would be after him and you have the kids answer the phone. So, you know, he, Jason was really, um, he was coached, you know, he was taught. And if he'd come from a different family, I don't, you know, I, I, he might still be allowed for the king of a frat who does weird things, but he, you know, he, he wouldn't probably have been this, you know, I don't think, uh, I don't know. I, I can speculate what I want. And look, it's not to create like some, you know, look, Jason did is a horrendous, despicable, violent action. That's what the movie's about. You know, I, and I, I like what you're saying about good and bad because in film, the filmmakers we love and talk about all the time, Fassbender, Scorsese. Kurosawa's a master of this. Yeah. High and low. And Ford, you know, it's yeah. all about, you know, look at the searchers, how gray is John Wayne's character as gray as it gets. It's a shame that he gets construed as so offensive because I think part of what makes it so great is that this guy is, he's an antihero. You know. Oh, yeah. We'll have to do a searcher's podcast because the movie clearly goes out of its way to show that it's aware that John Wayne's Ethan Edwards is a racist. It knows it. Right. He is. And other people in the movie say, you're a racist. Like, why are you doing these things? Well, and he's a prick. You know? Right. That's why it's such a great movie. And so ahead of its time, because it's one of the first to really do that. I think the moral gray is where I like to live and strive to live as a filmmaker. So Jason Derrick Brown that way, uh, you know, yes, look, I do think he was coached. And that's why I think you have to have that scene with Kevin Gordon. Because there were versions of the scene that have, of this movie that had no flashbacks, you know, to his childhood explain how he did. But I think that scene was really important. I'm glad it worked for you because, you know, it was very important to show this is where he came from and he was taught a certain way to be. And he worshipped his father. And in a way, for Jason, he's always trying to get back to that hotel room which is sad, you know, and a little scary. There's always that dichotomy between you set out with a movie you want to make, and then you hit the reality of principal photography and the headaches of production. You guys shot during COVID in Utah, you, whatever you have, and you got to edit it. What were some of the lessons you learned as a first time director when you hit principal photography that you could share with people? Because, you know, writing the script is one thing and you made it through that. And you made it through the notes process and you felt like I'm still making the script I want to make, which is kudos to you. Then 
everyone's there and you have a finite number of days. How many days was your shooting schedule? 22. So you shoot this movie in 22 days. In 27 locations. In so. 20, oh my goodness. So with, that, with action, SWAT, you know, murder, it was, yeah, it was pretty intense. How, so what, what were the lessons you learned as you're doing that? I mean, that's, that's rough. You're doing a company move every day. Yeah, sometimes two or three. It was interesting because the shoot kind of had a bit of a guest star structure, which actually I, I stole that from Brick. The Godfrey Brick, Ryan Johnson was talking about that. Like, because, you know, it was like Tom was there the whole time. And then every week it was like Ryan had a big chunk up front and then he was out. You know, people were coming in and out like that. And then it was like, okay, great. We have the Adina week. We have the Jackie Weaver day. You know, we have the Kevin Corrigan day. Um, you know, the Moises day. And it was always like a new kind of person coming in. A lot of directors have said this, so I won't be the first, but I do think movies in a way are made of prep. Now, one thing I did do going back to the actors quickly is... And I think this is a good tip for first-time directors that I got from uh, Billy Ray as well. When you start with an actor, it's a meeting. So you're kind of sniffing each other's tails to see if they want to actually do this. Right. right. And, and really it's like for someone like Ryan Philby, it's like, all right, do I want to, yeah, I like the script enough to meet him. Do I want to do this <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with, yeah. the, with the guy or, you know, do I want to do some other project of the seven they're offering me, you know, this month. So the first questions I always ask when it comes time to ask questions is I always like to ask, how do you like to work? Um, which is an obvious one. But then the other one, because these actors were in position where some of them, you know, Tom had just worked with Fincher, Brian Clint Eastwood, Robert Altman, Jackie Weaver, David O. Russell, and like so many great filmmakers in her in her role, like Taylor Sheridan, right? Or Adina the Safties, right? So I'd ask them each, in your experience, since you've worked with so many directors, what did the best ones have in common? Were there any, like, was there any traits? They all said more or less the same thing, which was that the best directors were prepared but flexible. Those are the two. Jackie said that. Adina said that more or less. Ryan said they all said it more or less. It was that, you know, they would talk about different styles. Like yeah, I remember Tom talking about the way Fincher worked and how meticulous he was and like how hands-on about every single detail as we already know. Like he explained, you know, everything he said about was showed there's a reason why. He just could see so it's like a microscopic vision that could pick up any detail. That's what I'm hoping to one day work towards. You know, yeah, I mean, he, they all said the more or less same thing, prepared but flexible. And I think that that was the key for us. You know, I had the benefit of, you know, when March 2020 came, we were going into casting and my life, like everybody else's, was in flux, <laughs> right? And my start date of my movie that I've been working on for, you know, three years was very uncertain. I had a choice of like, I was like, I could work on other scripts, I could do this and that. But I just decided to use whatever spare time I had to prepare for this movie as if it was filming tomorrow. That was a decision I made with myself. And I enlisted the help of my team, um, who I knew from film school and shorts, my amazing cinematographer, Khalil Robinson, my editor, Matt Allen, my editor, Chris Young. You know, my brother, who's a world-renowned conductor and pianist, he did the film score. This is his first score. Wow. And a, and a really good, a really good score. By the way, I, I had forgotten that your brother worked on it. And I was like, wow, the music's really high quality. And then I saw Scott Gentile and I was like, oh, that's right. I'll tell him he said that. Um, you know, he's insecure about it because it's his first score. You know, he never did a feature film before. or He did some short movies for me once or twice, but, you know, he's a busy guy and he usually is performing around the world. <laughs> and it just so happened, though, he was also shut down. So he had the ability to do it. And it really you know, it was a beautiful thing to watch to see him just take this on and as a lot of music, you know, 27 pieces of roughly. So, you know, I think connecting with your team and I think a lot of mistakes I've seen go wrong. I won't name movies, but I've seen like sometimes first time directors kind of get their shot. And then, you know, the studio or the company or the producers will say, work with this person, work with that person. Work yeah, with yeah, this yeah. Guitar, work with that. And I think what saved me on mine and allowed me to be able to do what I wanted to do was that I had a cinematographer, Khalil Robinson, who knew what I wanted. You know, we shot this in that script 17 times all the way through. We would then off that shot list, like together. I, I read that uh, Robert Eggers did this with his DP, like they would kind of co-shot list. And that's, so that's what we did, you know? I would draw the storyboards off that. I'm an awful drawer, but I would do it. And then my editor, Matt Allen, who I think you've met, he's been to your- he's Yeah, been to your I, I know Matt, like yeah, yeah. 20 times. He won the American Cinema Editors Fellowship Award. He had this pre-visualization software on his computer where we could build the sets in 3D, roam with a camera and shoot, you know, and like stage things like the murder and the SWAT invasion, like the bigger action set pieces. So we really prepared all we could. But then, you know, I think the prepared or flexible thing is that when you get to set, you have to kind of be ready for things to change for stuff to not go the way you planned at all. So if I, I block the scene stuff to here, but then Tom gets up because he has an instinct to, and it's much better. 
then you have to figure out how to shoot it that way. So, you know, I think constantly like being ready, able to adjust. I think that's where like some people, I think and some directors, including me struggle is that, you know, you have it in your head so firmly, but then when things change, you have to adjust to that. And I think that's the skill and right. you know, learning to solve the problems on the fly because they always come up. But I also think something else that was really helpful was sometimes being like, you know what, I know what I want and I know the movie I'm trying to make, but I'm a first time director and I'm figuring this out. So sometimes like, and it's not like leaning on people to solve it for you, but opening up to them a bit. We did once a scene you liked where the three of them are moving the stuff out. That scene was not working when we shot it. It was just like, I don't know why. I thought I wrote it well. We got there on the day and it just like, <laughs> you could feel it. Like you just didn't yeah, shot yeah. the master. It was just like, oof, this doesn't work. It, you know, it was awkward. Like the beats were off. The actors weren't feeling it. The producers are watching from afar. And I'm so happy to watch. <laughs> the, producer, the producers are starting to like look around a little confused. I'm like, oh God. So I went up to three actors and I took them aside and I said, listen, guys. And this was the first time they were meeting. I was doing that scene. So it was a mistake that I didn't rehearse the three of them. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And they're playing brother and sister. Yeah. Mistake. <laughs> I rehearsed with them individually, but not the three together because I thought it was too short of a scene and I didn't. <laughs> I learned. Mistake. <laughs> so I brought the three of them together and I said, listen, guys, okay, I failed you on the page. I thought I wrote a great scene. I didn't. It's not working. Help me. What can we do? Like, what can I do? How can I help you? Like, what can I change to make it work? Because I, I didn't get it right. I can rewrite fast though. I can, I'm good on the fly. What do you got? What do you need? And we actually didn't end up changing any lines. We just started talking about it. And I think they just saw, okay, this is not some arrogant director who wants to like, you know, butcher us into the taste. They helped me do the detective work and figure out why it wasn't working. And then it totally worked. So I think sometimes, you know, not thinking you have to have all the answers, but rather being open there's a great quote about directing. I literally wrote down a walk by Barry Jenkins after I was shot. He was like, I always thought directing was about being powerful, but then I learned it was about being powerless. I thought that was beautiful because it's like, that's what it is. This energy is happening. All of these energies of all these people, actors, crew, people who are just there to watch, whatever, right? Extras, background, like everybody who you know has a key part, has a part in this is there. And you're as a director, you're kind of managing that. You know, you're letting that flow through. And and I think that what we've talked about too, about Buddhism, right? And, and flexibility. And oh the, yeah, the middle path. And being that that kind of channel for it. And it sounds hippie-ish, but you know, I, I do believe it, that you kind of have to like be there to, to shepherd the movie and the vision. You know, movies, I think, come from something. I do think they come from something bigger because how else do you explain getting to make this movie with this cast in November, 2020? It was just not something, that, <laughs> you know? what's going to happen. You know, it was just, it was so out of, you know, so I think just being prepared is great because I think having a plan is important, especially when you shoot on this kind of schedule. Yeah. I, I don't know how you make a good movie without being prepared in 22 days. You know, when you shoot a movie with action and all that, like you, you do have to kind of know <laughs> what you want. Like some scenes were pretty improvisational, like Tom went off the page in the nightclub scene, but then things like the murder were like, you know, to a T, like, oh, this is where you walk, <laughs> you, know, you know, you know, and so it was cool to see, but I was amazed. I mean, we shot so much footage. The assembly was two hours and 40 minutes. I call my editors and I go, two hours and what? I was like, it's a hundred page script. How did it end up this long? <laughs> I don't even shoot that much of you guys. You shot a lot. So, you know, that speaks to, I guess, just what the actors brought and all that. I mean, it, you know, it's 140, so we cut a lot out. Yeah, no, it's a very tight movie. I know this is Everyone hears this and it's cliche, but it, it still bears because this is on my mind right now. And I want you to tell me, yeah, that was my experience or no, you're totally wrong. Get off your own podcast. I'm going to take over. Get off. <laughs> um, you know, you write something and you're by yourself with your computer, your notepad, and you do your best. You get notes. You try it. You're like, I feel it. I got then, as you just said, you go and you make it. And all these things are coming at you. You're getting all these suggestions. You got the DP and you've got the actors and the reality of the location and the, you know, the producers and you're in Utah and this doesn't work. And I got to figure out this and I blah, 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 blah. Then you get in the editing room and you have what you have. And unless you have a huge budget to go reshoot half the movie or a third of the movie, which most people don't have, you essentially have to figure it out. You're like, well, this is what I have. And I got to make a movie out of this. And if I have to change anything, I'm going to have to be creative with what I have. The question is, what advice do you have? And what was your experience editing the movie? Was it just sort of taking out the bad parts? Did you do some restructuring in the edit? What did you learn in editing? Well, I was very lucky. I, I had two really great editors, Chris Young and Matt Allen. And we learned a lot. Shooting was a sprint and post-production was the marathon, you know, where we had to find the movie. 
Even though, yes, it was a fairly tight script. You know, people who have read the script and have seen the movie said it stays pretty close. But, you know, the flexibility of having a nonlinear narrative is that it does allow you to distort some things. One thing that did change quite a bit was the third act. Um, the third act actually was in the script much more linear in terms of the events. And as we worked it and worked it, we realized actually it worked because the whole, the first two thirds were nonlinear that the last third had to be too. And that was something I didn't have right in the script. I thought I did. I thought the third act was climactic enough, but I learned through the different cuts that the third act had to kind of adapt to the rest of the movie. And it ended up working out well, but that was something, we, you know, we didn't have a reshoots. Like we couldn't get any of those actors back. That was never happening, but we did have pickups. We were able to work on that. Can you explain the difference when you say that you didn't have reshoots, but you had pickups? What does that mean? My brother compared it to Bowfinger, where we basically, me and my cinematographer got to go back to Utah. We got to shoot with the cars. You know, those were our actors. We could do like transitional shots, wide shots, things we didn't get, cop cars, some of that stuff. Um, the helicopter, you know, we got that for that. So we had like a lot of second unit, basically, but we were not going in and reshooting any scenes per se. So the scenes in the movie with like, dialogue and you know all that that's what it was but we were able to so something like actually kind of cool in the third act the big chase sequence that was actually created by my editor matt allen he mocked that up with stock footage cop cars from other movies and helicopters from other movies and he was like this is what i think you need in that part you know that's where an editor becomes like a co-writer because i was like oh yeah it's great and so then we went out and we shot to that so we were able to do pickup shots and because that was something I think, you know, I did know every shot of the movie I thought in my head to change, but I had every shot planned out. I had every, my, my schematics. I had blocking drawn. I had storyboards. I had previs. I had a lot of prep. But one thing I think looking back, if I was giving advice, I would say plan out transitions because transitions are something people often don't think of and they get you. I think also, you know, um, thinking about things like just those details like background and all that going in. Like I use this form, you've probably seen it before because I think they give them out at all film schools. I know you went to USC. They, like, they, they have this thing called the director breakdown where it's like, they basically ask you every question possible in your scene. I got it in my first year of film school. I still use it and it's great. Um, and it asks you every question from like, are they wearing to this, to that? But I think just, you know, there's always going to be more than you anticipate. Like when you're shooting a nightclub scene in COVID and you can only get 30 extras. So how do you make it look packed? I think you kind of always have to be asking those questions as practical considerations. Cause no matter how much you prepare for, there will always be something. And I think also if I'm in the advice train, taking care of yourself is important because as a director, you've got to lead a crew. And I know a lot of directors get sick after their first movie. I don't know how I did it because it was 18 degrees the whole time. I was just on pure adrenaline, but I did lose like 12 pounds. But and I gained the back in post. There's so much to learn and so much. Because I remember on the last day when we wrapped, we shot actually the last scene of the movie, which is an homage to, uh, uh, as I'm sure you probably picked up on, this is an homage to Searchers and Grand Illusion, uh, where he walks down to the snow. And uh, we shot that last. It was a rare thing that we got to do that. And Tom asked me, like, how do you feel? And I think I said to him in the moment, I was like, oh, I have so much to learn. <laughs> but I think we put a real person up there. <laughs> that was all I said. And then I walked off. You, you reminded me I said that because I didn't remember. I'm just so good. <laughs> I like fainted. Um, but you know, there's always so much to master and learn. And, and just when you think you've got it, there's always something that will screw with you. And that's film, right? As I'm yeah. sure you know from the stuff you make a lot, there's always something. Letting go of that, trying to make it quote unquote perfect, but just trying to make it better. That's, I think, the other big thing. It's like perfect and better. Just try to do it better. I want to thank you, Matt. As I get older, anybody who gets a movie made, and I mean they finish it, they get it out, it gets shown, they deserve a huge amount of credit, whether it's good or bad. Then anybody who, in my opinion, which is why I'm very loath to talk about movies I don't personally care for. I agree, by the way. <laughs> After making a movie, I feel exactly, I, I used to be much more critical before I made my feature. <laughs> totally, yeah, you get you get way less because you're like, these people got it's it so done. Hard. You know they had like only 20 extras that day and they wanted 100, you know? You know? But then anybody who makes a movie that works, that's good, that's pretty incredible because a, a lot of movies you can respect that they got made, but they might not work or might not, you know, they might be fair or, or, or whatever. And that's not damning them at all. It's hard enough to make a movie like you and I just said, but you made a movie that works, that is fascinating and gets people to think and is entertaining. Was it in the best sense of this word, like a, an entertaining watch? It's not like I was taking 10 minute breaks every 
10 minutes to be like, okay, well, I'll come back to it. I, I watched the movie straight through. And then I had to put my daughter down because she got up. So then I finished the 14 minutes this morning. <laughs> it was right at the very end. It was a Ryan Felipe moment. I was like, I got to put Pammy down. But I um, forgive you, Pammy. Yeah. You made a good movie. Fascinating movie with topic. And you got great performances. And I want to congratulate you. I mean, you did something that's very, very hard to do. So I hope people will go see American Murderer. It opens October 21st today when you hear this podcast. And if you can't get to the theaters, although we hope you will, I did want to say I found it hugely ironic that he thought robbing a movie theater was going to be a huge source of money for him. As a movie maker, I was like, I was like, wrong era, but um, but if you can't get out to the theaters, and you should go see it in the theaters because Matt and his team busted their butts to make a movie movie, and it is a movie movie. But if you can't, you can see it October 28th on digital and on demand. So it's very easy. American Murderer, you've heard the cast, Tom Pelfrey, Ryan Felipe, Adina Mazel, and Menzel, Jackie Weaver, Paul Schneider, among many other amazing performers. Matt wrote and directed it. You, you probably will see Matt at Secret Movie Club at some point and we'll embarrass him and I'll be like, this is the guy. He was on the podcast. <laughs> I look forward to it. I, uh, I can't wait to come back. Again, just reminding you tonight... October 21st. Go see American Murderer first. That's what you should do. It's in theaters. It opens tonight. If for whatever reason you can't see American Murderer, then we do want to tell you that uh, we are doing Deep Red and Opera, a Dario Argeno double bill at the Million Dollar Theater. Tomorrow uh, night at the Secret Movie Club Theater, we're doing the original The Invisible Man with Lee Winnell's remake with Elizabeth Moss. The Invisible Man and Lee Winnell, the writer-director, will be there for a Q&A. Uh, next week, Tuesday and Wednesdays, our open mic short night. And then Thursday, we're doing Gone and Hess and Blackula. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can find out what we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. You can go to Eventbrite to get tickets. Friendly Neighborhood Editor Connor Lloyd Cruz here. Just letting you know that next week, Secret Movie Club Podcast 123, my buddy Paul Emmerman is joining us to talk about Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace and the Italian Giallo film. Matt, where can people find out about your movie? So to keep up with the movie, you can follow me on Instagram at Matthew L. Gentile. And you can also follow me on my website, uh, MatthewGentileDirector.com, where I update things regularly. Um, and I just want to thank you, Craig, for having me on and for doing all that you do. You're a true Werner Herzog calls a soldier of the cinema. You know, as a filmmaker, a film programmer, a film curator, you know, what you've created with Secret Movie Club is truly special. And it's an honor to be on here. And this was such a great interview for me because you asked such good questions and really thought about them. And yeah, so just thank you for doing all that you do for cinema. And Matt, I, I really, I do appreciate that. You're always super enthusiastic and grateful, but I do want to end that, that today's about you. Movies are making the impossible possible. You made a movie. And like I said, you made a good movie. So I wish you every success with American Murderer. I look forward to seeing the next movie. I know you're already at work on new scripts and new projects. And uh, I highly encourage everybody to check this movie out. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us because we want our audience to know how movies get made. So thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Peace. Peace.